I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Lorelai Williams, the Senior Vice President of Grants Programs for Comic Relief. Comic Relief is a nonprofit organization which uses the power of entertainment to create a more just world and a world free from poverty. Comic Relief is also the organization behind Red Nose Day. Lorelai Williams joins me to discuss the crisis of child poverty and food insecurity, both in America and abroad. And although the pandemic has exacerbated the crisis, child poverty and food insecurity has always been a problem in America. We also discuss the best way to create long-term sustainable change in relation to this crisis. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lorelai Williams. Lorelai Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jen. It's great to be here. So we have a crisis of food insecurity in this country and a crisis of child poverty, right? And those two things have been exacerbated by the pandemic, right? We've had all of the job losses, you know, vulnerabilities in our food supply due to the pandemic. But I, I want to talk about what things were like before the pandemic, because there was a crisis before then, right? right. I think it was something like 20% of Black households and like 15.5% of Hispanic households had food insecurity. How bad was it before the pandemic? Uh, there's been this endemic sense of terror right? And insecurity, both around food, around housing, around employment and underemployment. That has been with communities of color, and we can specifically speak to Black communities here, but that it's it's been, you know, a part of sort of the, the historical experience of Black people and people of color, Indigenous people, certainly in this, in this country. Um, and so, you know, frankly, I don't have the stats in front of me to rattle off, but, um, you know, it's been historic. That's why so many institutions and organizations have been founded around these issues in these communities, because people have had to find a way to um, address these issues since the government hadn't ne- hasn't necessarily been as active in sort of making sure that those gaps are addressed. So you have a number of organizations that are that we fund that are doing this work. But yeah, so the, the rates were already at uh, at pandemic levels. People were struggling, obviously, with with the COVID pandemic striking as hard as it did, particularly um, Black communities, Indigenous communities, people of color. It has taken people to a level of both deep in poverty, but also exacerbated trauma, you know, in terms of managing with death, managing with a lot of the mental health issues that come along with this crisis, um, managing with housing insecurity and homelessness. But now it's very interesting, again, because there's this deepened sense of sensitivity and perhaps empathy across the country because people are getting a sense of, oh, this is what you all have been living all along, you know? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, too, with a lot of these, you know, debates that have been happening publicly amongst progressives and amongst liberals about like, oh, you know, we're all poor. We can't have the lives that our our parents had. Mm. But a lot of us (laughs) have been living like that way for centuries. You know, just thinking of myself growing up, you know. We were lower middle class, you know, poor, mm-hmm. poor by a lot of people's standards, you know, Same and I here. got free lunches, Yep. you know, and, and I was thinking it, it didn't feel like it was a crisis then to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't still doesn't feel like it's a crisis for a lot of people now, you know? Exactly. And I mean, for and I won't kind of hit this on the head any more than this, but, you know, when you look at the inequities in sentencing and criminalization of, of certain communities around drugs, right? The whole war on drugs was around crack and that whole epidemic. But then when it came to the opioid crisis, it became a health issue and not a criminal justice issue. So yeah, I think that that disparity is unfortunately very much with us and very much present. Yeah, that's a whole conversation. Like we can mm-hmm. just talk about that conversation. 
No, for the whole, I'm like, but let's, I'm let's getting not. all my talking points. So we do have the pandemic relief package, you know, yes. thank goodness, right? Mm-hmm. And Or the American Rescue Plan, right? Right. And I think it was something, we ended up with something like $2 trillion or $1.9 trillion right. you know, total. And a huge allotment of that was towards children. They said, you know, I've heard over and over again that it will cut child poverty in half. Yeah, right. Exciting. And I know Comic Relief has raised, you know, nearly $240 million or more since launching in 2015. And then, you know, this new administration comes in and, you know, within a couple of months, a few weeks, you know, they pass this legislation that just cuts it in half. And that just tells me that we could have done this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, and there's this this great quote, Sonia Renee Taylor is her name. And she says that, you know, basically this is the time to, to, you know, stitch a new garment, right? That we can't sort of go back to a, a normal, like there was no normal. It's a great quote. I'll actually send it to you so uh, it can okay. be referenced. But um, this sense of we can't go back to what we had before um, and that it's time to sort of create something new. And that, you know, that's sort of the silver lining of COVID was that, it sort of accelerated a lot of changes that needed to be made anyway, including like with remote remote workforce and, you know, other different innovations that have come about. And it's so interesting because, Jen, I think you're absolutely right. This this is a problem that could have been solved at least decades ago, if not more. Um, and I think, you know, it's one, a matter of political will. I think, two, it's a matter of this, the sense of urgency. You know, there was this window of opportunity for better or for worse. And I think a sense of um, people finally woke up to the idea of linked fate. They realized, well, if people can't get childcare, then they can't return to work. Then my business can't run. You know, it's like I think people identified deep in self-interest. And so it was like, OK, there may be some reason why it's in everyone's interest that everyone's votes rise. Um, but I absolutely think it, it could have been done sooner. And, um, you know, I'm really heartened hearing about this projection of five million children being lifted out of poverty within a year. I mean, it's Im- incredible what we can do with with Will and with, you know, the resourcing and, and with all these different actors sort of working together across sectors. But I think what my only concern is, right, because, you know, with a nonprofit, you want to work yourself out of a job. So I'm like, great, child poverty in the U.S. will be cut. So, you know. There's less to do, but I I think for a number of reasons, that's not a reality. And I can speak to that in a minute. But my concern here is that this is a one year policy as far as I understand it. And so, you know, there's a bigger vision of building out a plan, but then just concerned that, yes, we finally did something that should have been done a long time ago. What is the vision for sustaining it? You know, there's subsidized child care. There's free pre-K and community college even being contemplated here or proposed here. Free school lunches, family leave, child care. You know, all those different pieces that we know when you put them together really have a chance to address intergenerational poverty in a really tangible way. But if it's not a sustained policy, you know, I I just want to see the vision for for what comes next, you know, um, beyond this p- political moment. Um, because for better or worse, a lot of people within a year, and maybe some have already gone back to their lives as normal. And so that sense of urgency can disappear. And so I want to make sure that, you know, the vision, which is a grand one, can be materialized beyond this year. No, you're absolutely right. You read my mind because that was my next question. I was thinking, you know, your organization has been focusing on this in relation to the long term in relation to making changes that are sustainable, right? I mean, when you think about it, it's great that child poverty will be cut in half by this package, but 
Firstly, it's it's a package, right? It's a right. political moment, like you said, right? And still, you still have half of those children who will still be in poverty. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I know that your organization is focusing on not just in America, but generally, you know, getting child poverty to zero. I mean, mm-hmm. in America, at least we should be able to do this. So, so what changes do you think need to happen? You know, systemically, you know, culturally, to make this long-lasting change. Sure. I mean, I think there's so many different aspects of change. I think it like I think of it sort of like the spokes in a wheel, you know, that that propel us forward towards a, a, a future without child poverty or cutting it at, at a more significant level than in half. So I think about, you know, public policy changes that need to happen. I think about, you know, the role of corporations in here. I think of, of course, my sector, the nonprofit and philanthropic sector and what needs to be done. And so for the moment, because there's so much to, to sort of wrap our arms around, I want to focus on, I think, what the philanthropic sector can do, what the nonprofit sector can do. And um, in some ways, what they've, what they've really led I want to say led the country on, right? Because so many of the the organizations that we fund, for example, those who are working to end food insecurity, they already understand um, the importance of public policy. And so they may be, we may be funding them for some some sort of, you know, more of the direct service side of their work, but there have been immense sort of efforts by the nonprofit sector to really make sure that they align and build coalitions with other organizations working to shift public policy. So that again, some of those pieces of um, those strategies around childcare, um, around family, paid family leave, around child tax credits so that those can sort of be institutionalized and SNAP and all those other um, pieces of legislation around um, food insecurity. Um, and so they've they've been doing that work. And I think now what's been great to see um, is that philanthro- uh, the philanthropic sector has really deepened their investment. And then also, I think, moved into a position of more trust-based philanthropy with nonprofit folks who are on the front lines. And so, you know, through COVID, there was this, I think it was 700 signatories, it was a council of foundations issued this sort of statement around, you know, what is our stance with regard to supporting nonprofits through through this era of COVID? And it was really sort of being led by the sector in, instead of us leading, you know, and frankly, funders do often, unfortunately, drive a lot of the work that gets done or gets funded, I would say. And I think now there's a there's a sense of you guys are actually deep in the work. Let's stop and listen and be responsive to what you need. And so I think the more that that can continue to happen, the more that we can sort of, you know, still have some sense of accountability, right, for how the funding is done and and how the programming gets done, but also leave a sense of spaciousness knowing that we want to make sure that nonprofits have the time and capacity to focus on the work and not always on, you know, completing you know, dotting I's, crossing T's on all these sort of lengthy reports that foundations um, can can be known for doing. Um, so I think that's some pieces of work around the nonprofit sector. I think a big opportunity here um, in terms of shifting this, this work around child poverty is to think about, um, you know, what can we learn across borders, right? Because I think there's been a lot of effective work across um, the boundaries of states, you know, um, and then different regions in the United States. But I think there's been less dialogue, like how do we address hunger from the perspective of the global South? What are some lessons that have been learned there that are material and really useful and necessary in the current, um, with the current situation that we're facing here in the United States and then vice versa? Um, the same for digital education. I think there's some really important um, international exchange around learnings and best practices and funding models that 
need to happen. So those are those are some ways I think um, the philanthropic and nonprofit sector could could work towards cutting child poverty. And, you know, of course, those deepened investments in education, in employment, I think investments in two generation strategies, you know, so often in our world, there's a sense of it's easy to fundraise for children who are in poverty, but guess what? They're part of a larger family and a larger community. And so really having funding models that support that, that don't exclude the adults who are living in poverty, but see them as a part of that ecosystem as well. I think those are some pieces for the nonprofit sector. And then, of course, there's pieces uh, around local and um, national, local and national um, public policy. There's pieces around corporate social philanthropy, but also the role of corporations. You know, so there's so many aspects of it, but I wanted to kind of stay in my lane and just focus on the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors because I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So are you saying that this moment has been kind of better for nonprofit organizations in this space because, because, because why? Because I, mean, I guess from my experience, what I've learned is that when there's some kind of political crisis or a national crisis like the one that we're in now, or even this is a worldwide crisis, right? The pandemic, that focus shifts off of these nonprofit organizations and people start to kind of concentrate their money in presidential elections or I don't know what they, where they're focusing their money. But typically this has been kind of a hard time for nonprofits to raise money. Am I, am I wrong about that? You know, it's interesting because we were tracking this really closely with our grantees around um, March, April 2020 and really trying to understand like, you know, where were people's financial projections shifting? A lot of them, of course, couldn't hold their fundraisers and galas. And, and you know, a lot of them um, relied on events-based uh, income generation. And then there were some who relied on corporate foundations for funding. And of course, with so much uncertainty around revenue, some of that got cut. So I won't lie, you know, I think for sure there's been a lot of financial um, setbacks for nonprofits. So I think there's some work to be done, but it's also been interesting to see that there's been a number of funds, you know, not anything that we've necessarily supported directly, um, but a number of sort of COVID focused funds that our grantees have been able to leverage significant amounts of money, actually. So not necessarily for their direct work, but for this sort of emergency response. So they have um, there have been um, some gains there. So the moment in terms of the benefit to nonprofits is, is that there is a, an understanding of Number one, our collective ignorance in terms of how to solve these problems, but then the collective brilliance of folks who have been in these communities and then also organizations who have been working in these communities for decades. Like, guess what? This is not a new issue for us. We've been working on it. And here's what we know works. Right. And so I think to, to be able to turn a spotlight on organizations who are doing this work and to have them receive so much more interest and attention. You know, people a lot of people didn't know, like, how do you deliver education remotely? But some of our organizations, like an, a, a group that we supported in um, Bangladesh, for example, had already figured out how to do stuff through cell phone because people didn't have that sort of connectivity, you know. And so I think to, to have the spotlight shown on um, the innovation and sort of unique models of, of meeting these issues, which were, again, pandemic uh, issues before COVID. I think that's been a benefit for the sector. And again, the sense of philanthropic leaders understanding that the, the balance of power needs to shift more towards those organizations. And I think it's really important that you mentioned learning from other countries and other regions. And you mentioned the global South kind of picking up some lessons from them, because I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but I think that part of the problem as to why, one one problem as to why it's taken us so long to realize that this was a crisis in America is that, you know, we have this this notion of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk yeah. about child poverty and we see it on television, we see these fundraisers, they're not showing American kids. <laughs> right. You know, they're showing these kids in other countries because, of course, we 
don't have a problem here. I mean, is that part of that? This problem is it a perception issue. You know, it's it's an interesting question because poverty looks different in different places. So there's different ways that poverty shows up. And I think that accounts for the difference in people having that sense of American exceptionalism. You know, when you hear like a lot of the political campaigns, historically, they've always talked about the middle class, like helping out the middle class. It's like poverty is a dirty word and working class is a dirty word (laughs) or working poor. You know, it's like we don't want to think about trying to help those people. So in a way, it's, it's sort of been erased out of our vocabulary. You know, the fact that you look at what, what's happened with unions over the last decade, there's a sense of erasure around conversations about poverty and also erasure around um, building power for poor people. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of goes back to how we started this conversation. You know, yet we have millions and millions of children mm-hmm. who have food insecurity in this country, right? And, you know, I know that your org tackles other life quality issues for children, you know, like home, you know, instability, houselessness or homelessness, which is what we used to call it in education, right? Mm-hmm. And I just want to drop some stats. You know, I like to drop stats here and there so people can get, a, you know, a sense of, you know, how bad it is, right? Yeah. Like, I think one stat that's on your website is that a child drops out of school like every 26 seconds, which is, you know. Um, so can you talk about that program and some of your other programs that you have that tackle things like that? Absolutely. Yeah, we have um, a series of pillars. This is how Red Nose Day has been structured pretty much since its inception six years ago. So the the main pillars are keeping kids healthy, safe, and educated. And then um, when I came in first as a consultant, designed sort of their five-year grant-making strategy before I moved into the role and added a fourth empowerment pillar. And so those are the sort of four big buckets, for lack of a better word, that we place our work in. Under education, uh, we decided to take a, a pipeline approach to thinking about delivering education services and increasing access to education. And so we look at one end of the pipeline, which is around early childhood education, which is um, you know an acute issue globally, of course, but also here in the United States. Um, And then we've got a number of incredible partners who I can speak to a little bit later around early childhood education, both in the U.S. and abroad. Um, And then through that pipeline, um, we go at the other end looking at um, college prep, increase access to, um, you know, vocational training and things of that nature. And then at the through line is um, provision of STEM and STEAM learning. So science, technology, engineering, arts and math. Um, because when you think about, you know, before we sort of funded a little bit more broadly after school programs and, and other sort of, you know, different aspects of educational delivery, service delivery. Um, but why we landed on the pipeline um, and particularly with that th- steam, the through line of STEAM was to think about, you know, what is it that will make a tangible sort of pathway out of poverty for young people? Right. And we know STEAM and sort of the, the new economy and where it's headed that that poor people and people of color are least equipped to compete in that arena and then also you know have least ac- less access to sort of education in quality education let's put it that way in those in those areas and then early childhood education because of all the studies that we know that that really is a big marker of uh, future educational success and employment opportunities and income and then of course looking at the other end of the the pipeline around college prep we know and maybe you and I know from our own personal lives the the shift that can happen in terms of uh, breaking generational poverty when there's that that access to higher education, um, which also translates, of course, to different career access options and income earning, you know, earning potential. So that's the education pillar. The next pillar is the health pillar, 
And there we fo- we continue our focus on um, prevention of diseases, particularly in in the global south. So we have work around the you know basic vaccinations for children, the, the things that are sort of common here in the United States, which are not there: hepatitis, measles, tuberculosis, all those different interventions to ensure young people and children are protected. Another f- feature of the health pillar is a commitment to addressing food insecurity. And that's both through um, the provision of food, but also helping sort of looking at the larger question around food systems and food sustainability um, in some places um, in the U.S., community gardening, and then also abroad looking at sort of deeper systems of support for local farmers. The final piece is, of course, access to health care. But there's another piece that we decided we really want to hone in on, and this was before COVID, um, but it's even more important now, which is around mental health. And so we've been supporting um, the delivery of telehealth services, particularly to teenagers during this time. The next pillar is our safe pillar. And under that piece, we're really talking about two things. One is a, a focus on disaster preparedness and disaster response. We know that historically young people tend to be um, the last sort of uh, focus in recovery and relief efforts, um, but are hit hardest in, in so many ways that endure for years um, as a result of experiencing natural disaster. So those are that's one area of focus. And the other area is an area we call children on the move. And within the sort of international human rights frame, when we think of children on the move, that's really about um, refugee and migrant children. And for us, that that is of critical importance, particularly when you look at what's happening with Myanmar, with Colombia and Venezuela and, you know, so many other places around the world, obviously at the U.S. border. Um, but we also, when we say children on the move, think of young people who are disconnected from the concept of home, however we want to look at that. And so it could be homeless and street connected youth. We also have broadened it to include um, young people who are institutionalized, um, young people who are in foster care. So that sense, just addressing that sense of rootlessness for children, for for low-income children who don't have um, that sense of stability. And then the final pillar, which, you know, it, it was a labor of love, and we really coalesced around it as an organization in some pretty amazing ways um, because it was an unfamiliar piece of work for the organization. But the empowerment pillar really looks at um, youth leadership development and economic opportunity. To me, when we think about like what are those critical elements that you know we need in order to um, advance economic mobility for poor young people, it's really that, right? The sense of agency for themselves to shift their lives, but also to shift their larger communities' realities. And then also the literal access to job training, to job skills, to income generation opportunities, and to, um, you know, seed funding to start their own businesses. And I think, you know, for us, it couldn't have come at a better time. Obviously, we were working on this 2019. um, But then, you know, what we've seen through COVID is that youth unemployment really skyrocketed. um, And that, you know, just in general, there was so much uh, in- increased insecurity around employment. Um, and then also there were so much, um, particularly for young folks of color who are poor and over concentration in sort of frontline jobs like, you know, delivery, package delivery or supermarket clerks and things like that, things that put them in sort of harm's way. And so this really broadens the base of, of opportunities for young folks who are in lower income communities so that they can chart a different course for their life. And so added together, you have the education safe 
healthy um, and empowered. That's sort of what we look at as our model for addressing child poverty in a very holistic way and, and hopefully in a more sustainable way. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, when I was listening to that, I was thinking I was listening to some conversation on a podcast the other day about, you know, how all of these pieces, which are invisible to other people, but how they come together to, you know, keep children, you know, in poverty. And then, you know, they they kind of, you know, support that generational poverty, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not healthy, if you don't have mental health care, if you don't have, you know, just a natural disaster or any kind of disaster pandemic, if you're already impoverished or you have food insecurity, each little chink can take you down right, right on the totem pole. So I, I'm glad that you're focusing on all these separate pillars and, you know, to kind of lift up the entire ch- child, you know, like a holistic approach, like you said. So that's, that's great. Yeah, because you can distribute food, you know, one time to a child, but then next year they're still hungry. And so we've got to look at, you know, what are the pieces that need to have happen in parallel and hopefully, you know, with a with an eye around intersectionality. So how does poverty look different if you're a young white rural child versus if you're um, a young Native American child on a reservation or if you're a young Latino child whose parents are migrants, migrant workers, you know, or of course an African-American child in an urban center. And so with those across those pillars, we have this focus on lifting up racial and gender equity and doing it in an intersectional way so that we're attuning to the unique experiences of the, those populations that we serve. Yeah. So so how do I get my hands on one of those cute little red noses? Because <laughs> <laughs> I see the celebrities wearing them. I'm like, oh, you know, are they digital now? They're probably digital now. They're digital now, but I do have a few. My, my daughter and my niece have, have made a whole mountain of them. But um, I'm glad you asked about that. They have, you know, it's been really interesting. My side of the work is around grants, but to witness my colleagues in the fundraising on the fundraising team and communications team and, my, and our CEO, um, just they've been so creative. And I think that creativity is a hallmark of comic relief, really, the way that we've used storytelling to bring awareness to those issues that I've talked about. Um, because for the average person in the United States, they don't really know or maybe don't want to know so much about the the details around food insecurity and what it takes to really turn that situation around. But what they're able to do is sort of make change uh, feel fun and feel engaging and build community around that change making. Um, and so the Red Nose Day is sort of this like little cute symbol of hope um, and sort of a beacon of, of a community that really stands stands together for children. Um, and so what they, they've done, of course, last year, we didn't do the noses um, for so many reasons, right? People were wearing masks and that made it kind of hard. Um, so they pivoted to this digital online nose. Um, and so that's where you can get it. But now there are red nose masks. The last thing I'll say connected to this is that um, with the noses, I think it's a, a, a nice way to bring attention to these stories of, of change that are happening locally. So I mentioned Children's Health Fund earlier, and we've got, we just actually completed this round of filmmaking um, with our grantees. And so one of them was Children's Health Fund, and they've got um, branches, chapters all across the United States. Um, but we worked with this particular um, partner in the in the South Bronx, and it was this family who um, they had given birth to this young boy, beautiful little boy. and um, But he was sent home from the hospital the same day he was born because of COVID. And so thanks to Children's Health Fund, they were able to get medical resources to help him because he had to be brought back um, due to some medical issues he was having. Wow. And so getting that access, you know, there's is some really fantastic ways that you can see the the direct shift that can happen as a result of that little red nose, you know, and the, and the community right. of donors that coalesces around it. 
Yeah. So if you go on your site and I, and I donate, I'm going to get one of those little noses. So if you go and you donate or become a mm-hmm. member, you can get a little nose. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You can, you can buy on, there's a, on our site, we can send you the link and folks can actually click on it and, and you make a donation, which will go to our fund um, for 2021 grantees and you can get your nose and, and uh, rock it on social media or however you want to do it. I'm going to do that. I saw Tyra Banks on you. She, she didn't wear the nose. I mean, I guess, you know, she's some a people will put them on a finger or a thumb. Yeah, or, she had them on her fingers. Right. But, you know, she's a supermodel. She doesn't want to cover She can do that. She can do that. <laughs> she has to smile. So you, you remember that, the <laughs> smile with your eyes, which we've all been doing with the mask exactly. now. So she can't, okay. she can't cover up her nose. Her she can't, but I, I will cover up my nose anyway. So I want to ask you about a recent initiative, because now you have a new youth advisory council. Tell me about that. Um, we launched that program in uh, 2020, but had been designing it for a while before then. And we've got eight phenomenal young people from the U.S. and around the world um, who are coming together to advise us on our grant making, which was really critical, right? We want to make sure that we're putting young people from those communities we serve at the center of what we do so that we're learning from them, you know, in this particular moment around COVID, what are the issues that are most compelling to you? What's really been the most challenging for you and your communities? And so um, they've been advising us on our theory of change, which is something we're putting together around transformation and addressing um, intergenerational poverty. So they've weighed in on that. They're weighing in on on our safe pillar. We have an impact study being done now, but the most exciting piece of work that that we're doing together is building a new fund that they're going to run. And so um, they've coalesced around three issues, which are hunger, access to education and mental health care. And they've got some through lines around racial and gender equity there too. Um, And the fund will be targeting the places where they're from. And so they've declared they want to have a focus in the U.S. around um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, young uh, people of color, youth from those communities. We'll also be funding um, in Cambodia, in Colombia, Somalia, and Kenya. And really having them at the forefront of designing the the fund, our our grant-making guidelines, and the selection of the grantees. That's excellent. I love it. Well, Lorelai Williams, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. And um, just thank you for everything you do. And I will send you a photo of me with my red nose once I get it. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, (laughs) Jen. It's been a pleasure. 